intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. This week, we resume our interview with Powell St. John and his wife, Toby. In the first part of the interview, which you heard last week, we focused on Powell's early music career up until the late 60s, where he finished with the band Mother Earth. This interview, Powell tells us how he met his wife, Toby, started a family, left the music business, but returned to it in 2005 when he was inducted into the Texas Music Hall of Fame. About a year after that, he hooked up with Rocky Erickson, performed some songs, and went on to record his first album in over 35 years. So let's not uh, waste any more time. Let's get right back into that interview with Powell St. John and his wife, Toby. Part 2 of The Sultan of Psychedelia. Thanks for tuning in to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. When we jump back into the interview, we're talking with Powell about the Mother Earth tour in the late 60s as a nationwide tour in support of their first album, Living with the Animals. But all the all the crowds in, in the Northeast during that tour, I, they, all the people were wonderful. Everybody was great for us. And the, what wasn't so great was the biting cold and <laughs> yeah. the misery of being in, in slush and, and wet snow in January. Yeah, I, I went to college on the East Coast in Connecticut, and so no, well, I had to you know go about that. those winters. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't get snowed on, but in Minneapolis, yeah. I busted my ass on the pavement, I, and snow drifts were about fifteen feet tall mm, on wow. either side of the pavement <laughs> on the sidewalk. I thought, boy, you know, it really does do it around here, huh. and just in here in between. Between falls, and I better get out of town quick. What made you decide to uh, leave Mother Earth? Well, we did that tour, and that certainly had a great influence on my thinking about <laughs> what I want to do in life rather than be a professional musician. Uh-huh. I decided I wanted to go to back home, and that was Berkeley. And, the, and Tracy and the band decided to stay in Nashville or outside of Nashville and make that their base. And I am not saying anything negative about the South or anything, but I came from a southern state, and I lived in a southern state a long time, and I decided I wanted to live somewhere else five years earlier, and I didn't want to move back to that kind of environment. It might have done my career good, I don't know, but I came back home anyway because I was homesick. I went through a time of uh, being unemployed. I told the uh, the and the uh, unemployment people that I was an unemployed band leader, mm-hmm. 
and they had to, you know, if I couldn't find work, then they had to keep me on the roll. And sure as hell, there wasn't any work for unemployed band leaders. <laughs> and so I was able to collect unemployment for a while. And then about this time, I guess I started a romance with a real sweet girl whose daddy was a the program director at KSAN Radio, mm-hmm. a local character and a promoter and DJ named Tom Donahue. I met his daughter through Dusty Street, who was a DJ at KSAN in those days, who uh, lived... We lived in the same house in San Francisco for a while, and we had a, a, a torrid affair. I, I still love Buzzy. She was a wonderful girl, and it was I'd known her for over a year before I found out that her name wasn't really Kathleen Donahue. It was actually Kathleen Coleman, because her father had just taken the name Don, Donahue as a as like a professional name. Wow. <laughs> thought, oh, okay. Miss Coleman. <laughs> yes, it says, if my mother comes out here, you'll have to call her Coleman because that's our name. <laughs> Around, oh, I guess, a year into this relationship, Tom was an ideal guy. He, he had outrageous ideas and carried them out. He decided that he was going to rent a bunch of Winnebago's, no, vehicles. Yeah and get a bunch of people together and they were going to call themselves the Medicine Ball Caravan. Hmm. And they were going to cross the United States. The lead in Winnebago would have a big sign on the front saying, we have come for your daughters. <laughs> and there was another thing that spe- spelled disaster to me. Oh my God! And, 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 and and the, and my girlfriend wanted me to come along because what was going to happen was they were going to get to the East Coast, do shows all the way across the country, get to the East Coast and be handed, well, they, then they'd take a flight to London, play London, and they'd all get get tickets hand, back home given to them, uh-huh. and they'd be on their own in Europe. And uh, so if you wanted to go to Europe, why? Come along on the Medicine Ball Caravan. <laughs> well, that was one that I just at that point in my life I'd just been on that tour and, and within the year and I wasn't really I was chicken to tell the truth. Yeah, <laughs> what it was. <laughs> and so about a week before they were scheduled to depart, I was looking for a job all around and I found this uh, this uh, gig advertised for a jewelry fabricator for a little shop on College Avenue in Berkeley. So I went up and showed the guy some of the stuff that I'd done, rings I had on my hands at the time. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, you'll do. And well, all of a sudden I had a full-time job making <laughs> jewelry. And I, I, this is using my college education because I actually took jewelry uh, design in um, art school. Oh. So I figured, well, gosh, I can't pass this up. This is a steady job. It's not much money, but it's steady coming in, and I don't have to stay up till midnight every night or 2 a.m. or 3. And Be chased out of some small town by the locals. By the locals. <laughs> there was actually a, you know, a few altercations involved in that. I don't like confrontation, yeah, especially by people with guns and stuff. <laughs> 
But uh, so the day they were going to leave, I went down to Fisherman's Wharf where they were all putting it all together to go. And I told my girlfriend, I said, I can't go. I just can't do it. I'll see you later. Bye. Mm-hmm. And so she went on to uh, on the tour, and they, in fact, did go to London and play. And uh, she spent six or eight months in Paris working uh, for mm-hmm. something. I'm not sure what she was working for. Radio, I think, somehow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was another... That was a thing I could have done, but I didn't do, and maybe I should have, but I I carved out a different career path, that's all. Mm-hmm. And for the next 14 years, I made jewelry. And it was never expensive jewelry, and quite the opposite. It was the sort of stuff that you would buy at, uh, at the flea market or uh, from the little boutiques that mm-hmm. have a, a rack of our brass earrings on the line you know, and, and uh, that kind of stuff we made hair barrettes and, uh, and and lots of necklaces one of the mainstays of our business was the, the mm, Filipino American ladies upstairs who put together things with beads and so forth so mm. we, we we wholesaled all over the country and turned things out by the if you wanted a pair of our earrings, you might have to order a half a dozen pair. Mm. I made them by the gross, so yeah. you know. <laughs> it was a it was a very hand operated, uh, uh, low tech uh, manufacturing outfit, and I really liked it. It was just it was just what I would have been doing at home, but uh, maybe not with quite as expensive materials because. The, Brass is cheaper than silver, even then. Mm-hmm. But and it was a lot of fun for me. I had a good time doing it, and I got to got to meet a lot of guys that were and that were fresh in from the Philippines. Mm. Some remarkable people too. Mm. Some uh, they came into the shop one day, and one of the guys was singing "I Left My Heart in San Leandro." <laughs> I always thought that was good, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Did you stay uh, in touch with the music scene while during that period when you weren't playing music? Well, you know, in the early 70s, I had a friend, guitarist from Texas, uh, a Houston blues guy, Jerry Lightfoot, who was out here on the coast. And he and I would play together. He kind of kept me playing guitar and writing tunes in the early 70s. But then he he went back to Texas, like everybody else did. Mm. And I didn't, that was my contact with the music world. I didn't know anybody else that played music around here. Well, I guess I did, but I never looked them up. Mm-hmm. It was just as, there again, the inertia took over. It was easier to keep on getting up every morning and going to work. And... Uh, and just living a regular, stable life. I finally felt better and was healthier than I'd ever been. Mm-hmm. At what and, point did you start a family? Well, around the late 70s, I was seeing this girl live in San Francisco. and We piled around a lot. And one night I came over to her house and there was this girl there and she said I want you to meet this girl her name is Toby she's been with the circus she rode an elephant 
<laughs> and of course, she had told Toby equally fallacious nonsense about me. <laughs> and so, uh, so I met Toby, and I thought, wow, she's kind of cute, you know. And uh, it was just I'm maybe not more than half an hour that we first met, but I, I kept track of her through this this person. Toby moved to New Mexico. I heard that she was living in New Mexico, and then then I heard she was living in Hawaii, and, and she was never coming back, and, <laughs> and, and various things. And then Toby did come back, and, and she she uh, how we got together again. I don't know. I suppose it was through Beverly Dubin again, but uh, I went on a date with her, and we became friends. And over the course of about a year, that got a little closer and a little closer. And, and eventually I was coming to her house out in the avenues every night and, and staying there all night long. And, uh, and then came Acacia. <laughs> yeah, then suddenly we had this thing going on. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I'd been planning on it. She said she hadn't, but I think she was full of hot air. <laughs> I think she knew that was going to happen all along, and it did. <laughs> Finally, it's all gone. And uh, so then things took a different turn. I decided that I wanted to be married, and we had to both come to a decision on whether or not that was going to happen. And that was probably around oh, the beginning of 1983. And all this time um, that I knew Powell, he would always like play guitar, you know, play music, sing songs, pretty much every day. That, but I think that that was the only like in touch thing that he'd had with music. Well, that's that's good though. I mean, so you really never really dropped it. You were always still. Oh, doing well, it was just like the way I started playing harmonica when I was uh-huh. twelve. I went back to playing playing guitar and harmonica. I still played harmonica some. Because I just I'm compelled to play music once in a while. Mm-hmm. That's all there is about it. And uh, well, <clears throat> actually, it was '82 that I was contemplating marriage. So we married in uh, by, by October of 1982. Toby made a very cute pregnant bride, <laughs> <laughs> and then in January, Acacia came, <clears throat> and boy, that was so much work. I couldn't believe it (laughs) i didn't have time to play guitar so much anymore Mm -hmm. and in fact it it all came down to especially in 1985 when the second one came and now i had two babies and no job (laughs) at this particular time yeah and uh, it wasn't time to play guitar so I, I stole the guitar in its case under the stairs for about 10 years while I raised the kids. Mm-hmm. I helped them grow up and get big enough that they wouldn't try to dance on my guitar. <laughs> things like that. But, you know, it, it was just this hiatus. And, of course, since 1983, I hadn't had anything to do with the music business, or even before that, really, we, mm-hmm. uh, for a long, long time. I had a business partner who was supposedly taking care of things. Yeah. 
<laughs> but he was not taking <laughs> care was, of things in the way I thought he would. He, he got to me for about 300 grand before he was uh, caught up with him. His partner in, in his publishing company. Oh. Yeah. From those days in San Francisco, he came out from Texas. And, uh, and as, as Doug Somm once said about uh, about the promoter Huey Moe, he says, I know Huey's a crook, but he's my crook. <laughs> and I had the impression that uh, that Henry was going to be my crook, too, which he was for a while. We went through a court case to uh, get the rights to Bye Bye Baby back from mm-hmm. uh, from Bobby Shedd and mainstream records that had swiped it. And uh, Henry was very helpful in that. And we were to share everything 50-50, which we did for a while. You think? But ultimately, Henry moved to Santa Monica, and I stopped hearing from him regularly. And So you were just another victim of... <laughs> well, I let myself be yeah. taken, you know, because I was busy doing other things. It was just easier to... Uh, it was just easier to continue doing these other things and ignore what was going on because I knew this guy and I'd never be able to try to pry anything out of him anyway. Yeah. You know, if he stole any money, it was gone yeah, because it went to the ponies a long time ago. <laughs> mm. And uh, I just let it ride for a long time. He told me early on that his, well, his wife died of a brain aneurysm suddenly. And he said he had big medical bills, which he probably did. I don't know if he had any insurance or not. Yeah. But I cut him some slack for a number of years because I figured, well, you know, he, this guy is not employable. He'll never get a job anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's he going to do? And, you know, I felt a certain responsibility there. Mm. Was, after all, he had been my partner for a while. And it was. It seemed like... Probably wouldn't be as extreme as it turned out to be, but uh, eventually, because of the prodding of my wife, we looked into it. And uh, did anything get resolved? Well, we got the rights to the song. Now that's important. And the future royalties are now are coming to us. Mm -hmm. The rights, uh, we ownership of the publishing company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and this. The song I'm speaking of is Bye Bye Baby, which is the cash cow of the whole operation. change my living standard and I move uptown Bye-bye, baby, bye-bye So long now, honey, so long Yes, and if I do, okay I'm gonna see you in the funny papers some old day Bye-bye, baby, bye-bye I get the feeling I could court you clean on in the ball Wind up staying put off, foot down, strained out and stall 
ain't got time to wait on you or to catch your Super Bowl. I got lots of things I gotta do. So we got it all back, except for the money that was made on it in the interim that mm-hmm. he kept. That was kind of a sour experience, but it was just a, another indication of what goes on. I've been swindled out of everything at one point or another, all the elevators tunes. Mm-hmm. And Bye Bye Baby, of course, that's pretty much what's been done, and it's all been, uh, it's all been taken. Some of it's still in, still controversial. Who owns the rights to the elevator songs that you wrote? Do you know? Well, now, I should, but uh, Leland Rogers and uh, the international artists, the people that, that uh, published everything the elevators did, took my material and, and published it, too, with the first Elevators album, mm-hmm. giving me a backhanded... Uh, Acknowledgement by saying these songs were written by John St. Powell, but they intended on copywriting them themselves. And I wasn't—I was out of the country, and I wasn't sophisticated enough to know what was going yeah. on. So they did that, and uh, then for years the elevators were moribund. There was no no economic reason for going after them because yeah. there was nothing. They were disbanded. They'd all been in prison. One of some of them were dead, yeah. and it was just—it looked like a dead issue for a long time. So, whenever I wanted to record one of those songs, I would just do it and say, mm-hmm. file the copyright papers myself. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever came from that. Mm-hmm. They never—they never squawked about it because they knew if we went into a court case, the whole thing would come out. They couldn't produce any document that said that I ever told them they could do anything with those songs. So, Well, with the fact that the elevator's resurgence, which has definitely happened now, especially mm-hmm. since that tin box set and and Rocky's return to prominence, yep. well, now there is music. There's money in it. And with the Internet, there's definitely money in mm-hmm. the elevator's uh, material. But in the interim, while there wasn't any money, an international artist sold the catalog to Charlie Records in the UK. <laughs> and so they say they own them, or they were saying that. Now, our um, uh, publishing, publishing administrator, Bicycle Music, says it's all taken care of, and I'll be Except getting the royalties in the future. Uh-huh. Yeah. But there's still one song in contention. I forget which one that is. Take that, girl. And the truth is there shouldn't be any of them in contention. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it gets complicated when another company buys something from another company that didn't mm. really even own the rights to it to begin with. That's <laughs> because right. Then those guys feel like they got swindled, and yeah. Well, so, and, and Charlie is very difficult to deal with. You can't communicate with them very easily. Mm. 
we've had certified registered letters returned unopened. Huh. I don't know what happened. I guess it's, I thought they were supposed to be delivered in person, like a subpoena, yeah. but I guess not. <laughs> Just send them back. <laughs> yep, take them back. Send them back. Yeah. So I want to also want to talk about your art. So uh, when you stopped doing music, well, obviously you were still doing music, but not playing formally in, in Mother Earth. Uh, when, when did you start to incorporate uh, painting and sketching? Well, you know, uh, that's my uh, college degree is art history and criticism, which involves a certain number of hours in the studio and mm-hmm. life drawing classes and all that. I always wanted to be an artist anyway. You know, as for any kind of connection between my musical stuff and my artistic stuff by my uh, my works on paper, I've never been able to integrate the two at all. I, I've thought about drawing a picture of a guitar, and I've always said, nah. <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't then two don't, don't seem to equate to me. The only way I've been able to put them together, and this is only very recently, is is if I do a CD package or something mm-hmm. like that where I can use my artwork on the cover. I love doing that. I think that's mm-hmm. great. But uh, that's as close to it as I've ever come getting them together. What's your inspiration for drawing and sketching and painting? Well, you know, I don't know. The The chronology on that is that I would have always drawn a little bit from time to time, but about oh, around, I don't know, the early 90s or the late 80s, I wasn't playing guitar, but uh, and I didn't I didn't consider this consciously that I, oh, I'll draw instead or anything like that, but I just started drawing and I was saying to myself that if I am an artist or am I going to be an artist then I need to make art it's what I need to do so mm-hmm. if I want to do this I gotta I'm, I need to draw and, and paint so I did that for oh, over 10 years I guess uh, where I was always had a drawing going all the time and I crank them out about Oh, one every two or three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got this whole several boxes full of stuff now. But I haven't done anything regularly since the early part of this, uh, uh, the post-millennium, mm-hmm. 2005, 2006. I do have one going now, but they're, they're coming out the rate of <laughs> one every two or three years now instead of one every mm-hmm. two or three months. I keep you, telling myself I'll get back to it, and mm-hmm. I guess I will. Do you have any specific themes that you like to work off of? Uh, naked ladies, I like them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and beyond that, pretty much that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I had this this art show in, in Austin at this place, the South Austin Museum of Popular Culture, uh, back a year or so ago. And I put all this stuff on the wall, and I started looking at it, and I thought, whoa, <laughs> I think I'm revealing more than I really ought to here. <laughs> Look into power. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, you know, in a way, I think my uh, my visual art is more telling about the uh, how truly demented I am than my music is. <laughs> I, that's what I've been told. Wow, you are really screwed up. <laughs> I wanted to ask Toby, what um, 
drew you to Powell? (laughs) Well, let's see. Powell is a very soft and mild-mannered person who that I find to be quite charming. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, there's there's a, a humbleness that he has that's very attractive and very he's very sweet and very loving very creative and artistic Mm. do you like his art and his music oh yeah i like yeah i love his art and and i really like his music although i find it i i can't be objective about it you know Mm -hmm. i i don't know (laughs) if if i didn't know who he was if i'd like it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't always like my stuff. No, I don't. You don't like uh, raised girls dancing in their underwear. No, I didn't like that. No, I, I mean, I, but I, I like a lot of his art. I, good I think draftsmanship. it's really uh, fascinating and fantastical art. It's, uh, well, it comes from somewhere. I don't know yeah. where. It, if I could write songs like I like the pictures I do. Well, you do sometimes. Well, I don't know. <laughs> One of these songs is called Synthetic Love, which is really fascinating to me. The, the, the imagery and the, the words are just really interesting. Synthetic love The flames were celluloid Synthetic love It was dark 
as a funeral parlor With the rosemandel sun on your collar And the black-suited gentleman callers Took you and the flowers away Now that's actually one that's been written in the recent past. Mm -hmm. A lot of the material I do, I'm bringing back and and reworking from earlier attempts. Well, let's get back into your resurgence, so to speak, of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of back, and now you're back playing music, you're doing gigs again. You were inducted into the Austin Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2005. Is that when you kind of came back into to music, or was it a little bit earlier than that? Well, actually, it was the Texas Music Hall of Fame. Oh, okay. And uh, actually, that was... People called me up and said they wanted me to come to Austin for this. I knew about that award because my friend Charlie Pritchard had won it before. But I had no idea that I'd be awarded anything like that. And uh, I didn't know anything about the music business anymore. Like I say, you know, this thing happens during uh, South by Southwest, and I didn't know there was any such thing as South (laughs) by Southwest. Yeah. So I hit Austin, and all this stuff is going on. And hear all these people from all over the world. I'm doing jillion bands on in every venue every <laughs> night for a week. Yeah, that's a big thought, deal. What the hell is this? And they said, well, it's been going on 17 years. <laughs> and I thought, well, gee, I haven't been paying attention to Austin, that's for sure. <laughs> and the whole place had changed, too. Yeah. The whole geist of Austin is, is now decidedly different from what it, was, what it was when I left. It's what I wanted it to be when I left. So he was on a panel. They had a, a 34 elevators panel that he appeared on. That South called, by Southwest. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine, writer from Rolling Stone, turned to Powell and said to him, you don't know what a profound experience it was for me to he- listen to Kingdom of Heaven in my bedroom when I was 16 years old. Yeah, wow. Uh, <laughs> glad then, you didn't jump out the window or something. <laughs> and then, and, and this was the first time when, when Paolo got off that stage, I was just amazed. He was like swarmed by people. People yeah. came up to him, asked for his <laughs> autograph, said that he, he, he made a big impact on their lives, and it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen anything like that. Mm. It was amazing. And then that's when he also recorded his first solo CD, Right Track Now, with uh, some musicians in Austin. Some of the best ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, they took me and put me in the studio, and I hadn't been in the studio since 1968 or so. Mm. And wow, everything has changed so much. <laughs> A lot of changes. You know, I don't think that one was quite on key. Don't worry, we'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, computer magic that happens in the studio. And, and, you know, back in the day when you were recording, you pretty much needed to hit that stuff. If you wanted to, to make something that sounded like that, you had to actually do it. Yeah, you had to actually play it. Whereas, <laughs> you know, my band could go in and we could pro to- tools the thing to death, you know, until we get it just right. Oh, and, yes, uh, right. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. uh, just the amazing musicianship from that time period is the thing that really blows me away. and. Even when there are some mistakes, they're actually, you know, hidden treasures, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it just kind of adds a little spice. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. You know, I, 
How did you get in contact with uh, Rocky Erickson? Was he on that panel? He was kind of making a resurgence, a musical resurgence as well at that point. I know uh, the first bass player from the Elevators was there, uh, uh, Benny Thurman. He was on the panel. Hmm. And Bill Bentley, who's a Warner Brothers exec, or was through his career, who's a big Elevators fan. And, uh, yeah, I think Rocky was there. And Margaret Moser. And Margaret Moser. But Rocky... When, and Sumner. And Sumner, his brother. But when, uh, when in a situation like that, Rocky doesn't tend to talk a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty you, quiet guy. Yeah, and you ask him questions, and he'll tell you yes or no. <laughs> and Not a good interview. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't really go into detail very much. Yeah. But it was an interesting panel. And, mm. and the room was full of people. Mm-hmm. They all knew who Tommy mm-hmm. Hall was and who the elevators were and I think they knew the music a heck of a lot better than I did. <laughs> uh, so, I know you collaborated with him after that. How did you get it back in touch with him? And uh, well, was it was it there? Well, actually, most of the stuff that I showed them, I had showed them either by the time I got to San Francisco or shortly after. There, there were a couple of tunes that, I, that Rocky came over to the house and and learned from me. Uh, uh, slide machine being one of those, but. Uh, but I don't remember when we learned, when I came out with the right track now. I showed it to him at some point while I was still in Austin, though. And I, it never came out, and the elevators never worked it up, and I forgot about it. And, just, mm-hmm. and then I didn't even hear it again until I saw Rocky singing it in the anthology, in the back of a car riding down the street, playing <laughs> it on guitar, you know. Mm. And so we decided that that tune should be part of the... CD that I was doing there in 2005 and in fact it became the title cut and the neat thing was that long after I left the project and come back to Berkeley they managed to persuade Rocky to come in and and lay a, a track on top of the vocal and so they did both of them at once uh-huh. And his his uh, his phrasing is very different from mine, mm-hmm. but they put it together in just a pretty neat way. Writing you this letter says I'm feeling better. Getting used to spending all my nights alone. Wouldn't worry about it. I can do without it. Writing you to say I'm on the right track now I got my consolation My anticipation Keeps me smiling every time Every time I think you're away I see morning showers while away my hours. Still, I hope you know I'm on the right track now. How did you end up playing with this band, The Aliens? And can you talk about the origin of The Aliens? 
and who they really are. Well, my association begins with a very unlikely story. When I was in, working as a computer tech, I worked in a, in a big office building down Lower Market Street, 425 Market, and I worked for United Behavioral Health, which is a subsidiary of United Health Group. My responsibility was when a new employee came in, I'd set up a, a workstation for them and so forth. And I saw this guy, Craig Luckin, was coming to work there. And I set mm-hmm. up a thing for him. The name didn't mean anything to me. And uh, he was there for about a year. And then he got a job where he needed to have two computers on his desk. So mm-hmm. I had to go down and, and install a second one. And while I was doing that... At work, he was known as Ray. Right. I was called Ray at work <laughs> because it's my first name. Powell's my second name. And uh, while I was installing uh, this second computer for this guy, Craig Luckin, he looks at me and he says, are you Powell St. John? <laughs> and it's just all of a sudden, whoa. You're like, whoa. You know, and I thought, well, I've been interviewed and it's been on TV a couple of times. Uh-huh. I know there's some women in the uh, new business that know that I was in one of those. Maybe the word's gotten around here. And I says, well, yeah, I've been, uh, was that. He says, well, Chet Helms told me that you were working down here somewhere in an office building. <laughs> I'm glad to meet you. I'm, I'm uh, Craig Luckin. I was Rocky's manager in the 70s. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I worked with, I was a roadie for Doug Som and all this stuff, you know. And I, I owned some of Rocky's publishing and all this stuff. <laughs> and this guy, what, what he's, uh, he's a, a data analyst for yeah. this big insurance company, you know. And uh, somebody he knows all these people that I know, and he's on he's on the Rocky Trust. When Rocky was in really bad shape, they yeah. they put together a bunch of people that uh, made decisions for him, and made decisions among themselves, and and then applied them to Rocky, and, and just kind of took care of Rocky and made sure he didn't die. Yeah, and uh, so uh, all of a sudden, I knew this person that was connected with the music world. But who I knew through another completely different world. And he, having been Rocky's manager, he was a manager of Rocky and the Aliens. And he says, I'll put you together with, I know where, where Billy Miller is. He was the auto heart player. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. You should meet him. Well, Billy, as it turned out, was a kind of a musical genius, um, unqualified. And... Uh, he knows our new Dwayne Slaxon, who's the guitarist for the Aliens. And according to the two of them, there were never any other aliens that were permanent aliens anyway. Mm-hmm. They were just bass players they hired and drummers that came yeah. and went. And, uh, uh, Fuzzy Fusioro was the uh, Fuzzy Furioso was the most stable drummer they had, or the most long-lasting, I guess. So we decided we'd see if we can put together some music. So we all got together, and uh, after uh, my uh, lawyer provided a friend of his to play bass, a really exceptional guitarist named Bob Fagan, who uh, wanted to learn to play bass, and says, let me play bass with your band. And and, uh, so we got together, guitar and bass, and, and we ultimately found a drummer, and uh, electric auto harp, 
and we were pretty much in business. That's how we went out to begin with, with that format. The uh, We've changed drummers since the initial guy, and we've been working together now with the current format for about about two years. And we occasionally break it off and do an acoustic format with with fewer members mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to try a thing tomorrow where we put together the uh, the drummer is going to come down to my house and uh, bring a little percussion we're going to do some acoustic things see how that works my intention is to get everybody that plays in the band to be able to carve off and, and play as a segment of the band mm-hmm. and I'll play a little guitar if I need to Yeah, but uh, I want to have as a a number of different looks, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Different plays. And uh, so we're working on it. We work on things very slowly, and we have to l- memorize things before we can do them. It's not like we can read charts or anything mm-hmm. like that. So we just gradually craft what we're doing and play a lot by feel when we're playing live. Mm-hmm. And just... Because that's my ultimate goal, to get everybody to be able to make the, sta- the same mistake at once. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> Did you um, record uh, On My Way to Houston with any of those guys? Or is that a... It's a title cut of our CD with yeah. the aliens. So what does the future hold for you well, with the aliens and, or just in general? Well, if I can keep the unit together and, and keep there from being any infighting or... Um, anything like that my intention is just to keep playing as much as I can the way the industry looks nowadays if you're a musician and you want to make any money you have to keep playing it's it's really no industry as far as music business goes anymore no no recording industry much it's all a different game the Internet has opened so many possibilities at the same time slamming so many doors. I mean... Uh, mm, definitely. I mean, now now I have all the fame I want. I'm known all over the world through the Internet. Yeah, that's true. So fine, but <laughs> where's the money? <laughs> you know, that's, what, <laughs> that's the part that's not easy to get. Yeah, that, the, the that's The fame is not cheap. It's... Uh, yeah. But sooner or later, I hope we'll build enough fan base that we can actually play bigger venues and maybe open for bigger bands or whatever. But I'm still having a lot of fun, and I'm not holding my breath for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'm having a good time in the interim. That's the important thing, anyway. That's what I think. All right, is there anything that you have that you'd like to promote? I mean, we're going to be promoting your CDs, uh, well, any sh- upcoming shows. I've got those two CDs. I think they're both on iTunes, are they not? They are. Mm-hmm. And uh, look them up. And also go to powellstjohn.com from time to time to find pertinent and hopefully uh, accurate information. <laughs> about what's going on and what we're doing. You can take a look at my artwork while you're there, too. That's your main website? Do you have any links from to Facebook? or? Yeah, yeah. yeah we do. Facebook, All that stuff. And yeah. MySpace. All right, well, thank you very much, Toby and Powell, well, St. John, for coming down to Music Live Radio. Well, 
Thank you for having us, Dan. We're Certainly. always happy to talk, you know. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's what we need for this uh, podcast to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, anytime. Thanks again to Powell and his wife, Toby, for stopping by. You Check out his website at powellstjohn.com. That's P-O-W-E-L-L-S-T-J-O-H-N.com. Be sure to check out his albums, Right Track Now and On My Way to Houston. Those are available on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, you can check out Mother Earth albums on Amazon as well. And we're going to leave you with a song by Powell St. John, Hardest Working Man. Thanks again for listening to Music Live Radio. We'll catch you next time. If you drifted away I'm the way
He discovered that if you uh, shined a strobe light on a belligerent, drunk redneck, he'd become very disoriented, <laughs> and, he could, and he could be calmed down. <laughs> I knew there was a use for those strobe lights. <laughs> he couldn't see how fast he was punching. <laughs>